Welcome to World's Literature Festival 2013, a week of events, readings and discussion in Norwich. This podcast comes from an event looking at the life and work of Tove Janssen and features a discussion between the literary consultancies Becky Swift, the writers Esther Freud and Sean, and actor Cassandra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to uh, the House Street in Orange Cathedral for the uh, second event of our Week of Events Worlds 2013. It's a real pleasure to welcome you here this evening. Um, for this evening's event is titled Torn Between the Light and the Dark, Looming's Merchandise and the Life and Art of Troy Johnson. Um, it's, it's a real sincere pleasure to have an event about Troy Johnson, and um, I'd like to welcome this evening our guests, our host, uh, Rebecca Swift, is the founder and uh, director of the literary consultancy and manuscript service assessment and uh, guidance business in London. She's also a poet and a critical writer in her own right, as well as a librettist. Becky has been a board member of Writers Centre Norwich for six years until very recently. And I think about six or seven years ago, we ended up um, on a grassy knoll. Um, drink may have been taken. Uh, talking about moving papa at sea and Freud, as Becky has a deep and abiding interest in therapy and literature as well. So talk got around to lighthouses and men and islands in the middle of the sea and women disappearing into murals on the walls. And we discovered a mutual love of uh, Tome Janssen and the Lumens. And uh, as long ago as that, the kind of the interests that we shared started to develop and life that it's resulted this evening in, in an event. Our guest this evening to talk about Torbe Janssen, her work, the way her work migrated across many different forms, from comic strips through to animations, to movies, to novels, to critical writing, to music and much more. Uh, we have three wonderful guests. We have nearest uh, Becky, we have Sam West, the actor, uh, who has been a voice, of, a voiced uh, an autobiography, sorry, a documentary of Torbe Janssen, and also worked on a, an app in which her work was dramatised, uh, in which Nat Yance, I think, was involved also, wasn't she? Yeah. Um, we have Esther Freud, a novelist, um, uh, known in these, this part of the world, in East Anglia, uh, Norfolk and Suffolk, who also wrote the introduction to uh, Torbe Janssen's uh, summer book, uh, which was perhaps kind of the vanguard of her rediscovery as a prose writer for adults in this country after many years of, of neglect. And um, finally, we have Sean, who is an Icelandic um, novelist, uh, librettist, uh, playwright, uh, musician, lyricist, and collaborator in um, the days of my youth with Jörg and the Sugar Cubes. And, uh, and um, again, it's been another absolute pleasure of recent years to meet Sean and find that we also have Tori Jansen in common as a, as a um, as a mutual passion. Becky's going to introduce the event and we'll tell you what will happen. We're going to have uh, listen to some music, we're going to listen to some readings, we're going to have some conversation. And um, I think I will stop there and hand you over to Becky Swift, ladies and gentlemen. Um, well, I don't remember talking about um, lighthouses in particular, but I do know that Chris gave me this moment very early on in my broadcast of Western's Norwich. So when he kindly said, would you, if you like, like to do um, a swan song um, 
uh, events, uh, I said, why don't we do it about Toby Anderson since we both love her so much. Um, the only problem is the battery died a long time ago, but it's supposed to glow. <laughs> there, is, there is a purpose to bringing various bits of merchandise, and Chris has offered us a four-year-old bottle of Mumi, which is women's sparkling pot, and I've suggested that we opened it tonight and drank it, um, but I'd rather not, so I don't know about you. Sounds a little bit worrying. Um, but I think the point is that uh, she was somebody who, um, as with everybody else on the panel, we consumed, uh, was consumed in childhood. And um, through the years, various um, sort of iconic moments um, stayed, particularly from Finn family, Moomin Troll, the Hobgoblin Hat, and Moomin um, Troll and his friends steering the little clouds that come out of it. Um, and then what happened was... Uh, there were translations many, many years later of her adult work. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with her adult work. Can we just have a quick show of hands? Most people. So, uh, so this, this, was a, this was a moment when suddenly there was um, an edition in English of the summer book, which was the first adult book to be translated. And I was saying to us on the way out, I had this in my bookshelf for a really long time, and I just couldn't bring myself to read it because the attachment was so strongly with the Moomin Troll characters. And um, however much people told me it was a wonderful book and Esther introduced it, and we'll talk passionately in its defense, I didn't want to rupture, if you like, that sense of attachment to these rather floating childhood um, moments, which were significant, but it's true, rather foggy in respect to the original text, and also somewhat translated into the acquiring of merchandise, um, which was a long way from the original text. So one thing that we're thinking about the whole week is how literature um, mutates into different forms, and we'd like to think about that. Esther's had a film made of one of her books, Sidious Kinky, and Sion has had a puppet show made of one of his books. Um, so that question is in the air tonight. But roughly, uh, we're going to uh, look, uh, have a general conversation about why she matters to us, and I'll go through the panel systematically. And then Esther will do a reading for Comets in Women Land, which was the first, uh, well, after a um, dangerous journey, it was the first um, proper full book um, of, of Toby Anson's. Um, and then we will show an animation, uh, which we're very lucky to have Sean with us, who did the lyrics for a Bjork song for a Finnish production um, of uh, uh, something called, what's the film called? <laughs> Yeah, it's a comic book, Comet Chase or something like that, the title of it. Um, but, um, but John actually wrote the lyrics of that, and we'll show that as well, and we'll all have time to reflect on what that, what that means, whether it's uh, a welcome addition to our understanding of movements, or whether it's a challenge to, to our memories of, of, him, of it. Um, and then in the second half, we will... Um, there's no intervals, but we'll just segue into Sam's reading... Um, from The Cartoonist, which is one of the adult short stories. So in brief, I got over this issue I had about the childhood work and started to read the adult work, um, which is subtle and complex, um, not straightforward, and I think issues a serious challenge to the children's work in ways that we will see and which will become quite clear. Um, and that's why we've called this evening The Light and Dark, because there's a certain lightness or the Mancolia, some of them in work. But there's real dark in her adult work, which I think is extraordinary and all a testament to her as an artist. 
and she wanted to go on asking difficult questions, even uh, even though that, in some ways, I think, uh, uh, set up a sort of opposition, if you like, to the success she achieved as a children's writer. So that's one of that, that's a kind of trajectory that I'm particularly interested in. Um, but can we just start by um, going through your relationship with the movement, Sam? How, how come you're being invited today and to talk about movements? Um, I'm a fan. Although I have to say that the blurb for this talk says that I read the audiobooks, which I wish I had done. They were read by Hugh Dennis quite well, but it would have been my dream job, so I'll fight him if they ever get me. <laughs> um, no, a fan from my original Puffin 1972 boxed set, which, um, as you can see, is very well worn and I reread very often. When I was about eight, I read Finn Family Moon Control, and that, that bit about Mob Goblins happened towards the end, one of the last adventures they have, when Mumenmar puts the poisonous pink perennials in and it all turns into the, um, to, the... They grow and it all turns into a sort of jungle. jungle. And the snork goes around being the enemy, capital T, capital E, wearing orange peel teeth. And there's a little asterisk, and it says, if you do not know how to, uh, to make orange peel teeth, ask your mum. She will know. <laughs> and I did. And she did. <laughs> and I thought, how did Tommy Anson know that my mum was going to know? <laughs> Have they met? I mean, they were roughly the same age, but as far as I knew, they hadn't met. It was something that she knew about money. And I sort of trusted her ever since. <laughs> and I, I mean that. I think there's a, you know, that Perek book, um, Life in User's Manual. I often think of the women books as, as kind of childhood and user's manual. They're very remarkable books about that state, particularly from somebody who doesn't have children. And um, I'm sure somebody here speaks Swedish. My best friend translates Swedish drama. Uh, and there is a word in Swedish which I may mispronounce. It's vermod. Is that right? Does anyone know? It's spelled V-E-M-O-D. And it's one of those words that we don't have a direct translation for. But the, uh, the usual translation, the, the Wikimedia translation is pensive melancholy, or tender sadness. It's a kind of Keatsian rich, richness melancholy, like, like the ode to melancholy. We don't really use it in that sense anymore. And when I was eight, that was how I felt most of the time. And I still do, really. And it seemed that she knew that. And I read the book so often that I wasn't sure whether I liked them because I was like that, or that I was like that because I read them so often. <laughs> and I still don't know the answer to that question, but I don't really mind, because it seems to me that that, that mood, that peculiar, I was talk, trying to talk about it over dinner, um, there's a line, the first line of not novel on yellow paper by uh, Stevie Smith, how richly, compostly, lomishly sad were those Victorian days, not to know Victorian, but rich, richly, compostly, lomishly sad, seems to me exactly the sort of thing I'm trying to describe. Um, and for, so that division in the books between the sort of funny early ones like Woody Allen and the late serious ones which nobody liked so much didn't happen for me I still like Women Valley Murmur as much as I did and indeed made the transition to the grown up stuff when I, when I finally did read it and I had exactly the same feeling as you did about some of them um, much easier and it does seem to me of a piece um, she was one of those people who, I was playing Hamlet on the day she died, and I opened the newspaper.
newspaper in the green room at Stratford and saw her obituary and shouted at the paper because I was so cross that I hadn't written and said, how important to the work yeah. to do. Yeah. So you have to do that. That's probably enough. Gosh, well, that's, um, that's, that's amazing. No, I, to, I didn't realise that you were that identified with her. That's very powerful. And just one observation before we move on to Esther is that I, I, my memory was, um, Chris also observed this melancholia in the, in the books. And I, I don't know about other people, but I remembered all the playfulness and the magic. And I was rereading them today, and I kept thinking, I wasn't quite clear what Chris meant about the sadness, um, which I'm sure, I, I mean, it's not that I've, I've been very melancholic in my time, but it's so, so when I was rereading from Family Moon and Troll, I thought, what she does is just so beautiful, is that she, she's a fantastic container of, of extreme sadness with magical moments, but she doesn't compromise. So it is true that all the human condition is there. And for those grown-ups of you that haven't yet read, read the do, um, because it, it, it is it is true that she, she does reward um, rereading re in, in quite a remarkable way. And uh, just one of the little asterisks that I like is the character the Henry Lynn, who's a sort of big big grown up movement, three three and a half times the size, and it's a very melancholic character um, who goes around stamp collecting. And when the stamp collection runs out, he, he's very concerned because he's thrown into a melancholic state he knows no one else will understand because they'll say, but you've got your stamp collection. And he's thinking, I've got it, but what do I do now? And then when somebody suggests that he starts another collection, he, 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 he cheers up on the inside but doesn't dare show it because he thinks it's wrong to move so quickly from Mancolia to <laughs> And I thought, well, my aunt, who was attached to her dogs all her life, and when her dog died, and you'd say, get another dog, of course she'd say, no, 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 never. And then, of course, within about a month and a half, she had and was in love with the new dog, never. So again, I just thought that was so good. And there's an asterisk that said, Henry always wore his aunt's dress. Nobody knows why. <laughs> and then towards the end of the book, it says, the Henry curtsied because he thought it was better to do that in a dress. And you just think, that is weird. <laughs> um, but again, fascinating. Esther, what's your moon story? Um, we did have some moon books when we were kids. But actually, I was always kind of, unsure if I wanted to go into the world of fantasy. I, I, I'm not, I always want something to be real. And, and I never entirely identified this, but when I started um, to read to my own children, my daughter, as soon as the cat started to speak, or an elephant said something wild, stop, she said. Enough. She also wanted everything to be real. And I kind of thought, oh yes, that's why I didn't really pursue the movements as a child. Because they weren't real. What I missed was they are entirely real, and of course, you know, they're peopled with these wonderful characters that um, are in everyone's lives. And um, but so when I was asked, um, you know, this was ten years ago or something now, um, by Natanya Yaz, yeah. who is suddenly sounds so sweet, which doesn't, she's not at all. Um, to would I like to read the summer book that she was publishing and write with the view of writing an introduction? Immediately I opened it and began. I loved it. Absolutely loved it because it was real. It was about people and it was so honest. And it, it has a it has a melancholic tone, but it's so witty and sort of brusque and eccentric without being pretentious or knowing. And I absolutely loved it. And um, as I was reading it, I was thinking, I, I can't imagine 
you know, what, there's nothing else that needs to be said about this book. That's the truth about some book. Just absolutely word perfect. And I knew that she had written it, you know, with it a year or so after her mother died, and she was very close to her mother, who was a very inspiring artist herself, and designed stamps and was a graphic artist, and was the first woman in Finland to introduce girl guiding. So I love the idea of this <coughs> woman, mother, you know, who's also a mother of three children. And um, but then Nat said, if you if it would be helpful, you could um, Sophia, who is the little girl in the summer book, who is granddaughter, uh, the niece of Teddy Anson, um, she says, um, you could go and visit the island, and she would take you. And then I thought, well, absolutely yes in that case, absolutely, um, I'd love to do it. And I set off um, for Helsinki, and it was only when I was, I was so excited about the idea of the trip, it was only as I was sort of getting onto the airplane, and I thought, extraordinary, I'm about to go and spend two days with someone I've never met on a tiny island. Um, and then, and I thought, just, you know, I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be space for everyone. And, but when I, so it was, Sophia's absolutely the most charming and wonderful woman. So we'd already, you know, talked about absolutely everything by the time we reached the island a few hours later. But what I hadn't realised is how small the island was. <laughs> I put my bag down in a little house in the middle of the island and to walk down to the sea, which was just, you know, a few steps. And then I thought, oh, I'll just walk around the island. And I glanced at my watch. And when I got back, I noticed two and a half minutes. <laughs> and I had this terrible sort of creeping feeling of panic. As if I was claustrophobic, as if I was going to be... And then it sort of subsided, and I had this blissful two days. Um, after, on, 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 at the end of the second day, I was sitting there just gazing out to sea, and a ship passed. And then it stopped, probably about 20 miles away, but in my eye line. This is my view. <laughs> and I realised, and, and her, her adult stories are full of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. People become incredibly territorial, not about their, their, the land, but about their views. And I feel that so strongly. I'm obsessed with views, and um, means everything to me to have a view. Mm -hmm. And I've often been heartbroken by, you know, the erection of a large hut in my view by a neighbour. So I, I, there's a lot of that, and um, I found out so much about the life. Um, that it inspired all these stories. And now if any of them I read, I <clears throat> picture this island and also the mainland where they had, uh, Toby Addison had spent her childhood summers on the mainland and then as, a, as an adult had moved, built a house on this beautiful little island. Her brother had followed with young Sophia who lost her mother. And then, this is the thing I found really fascinating and deeply eccentric, more than I could ever imagine. Tove and her partner, Chiliki, who's also an artist, decided that this island was too overpopulated. And they set off on a boat and found another island, which was probably the size of this room, and was a rock. And there was nothing on it but some lichen. And we arrived by boat to visit this island, which is um, um, now, you know, open to the public. And you can find the key. There's a little note, and it says, you know, close the stovepipe and uh, put the key back on the latch. And, um, but it was a fearsome place. There was nothing on it, no trees or vegetation, not like the other island. And um, turns screamed down and screeched, and the waves crashed. It felt so extremely um, desolate. But they had made, when you walk into the house, there was this room, um, like a you know, medium-sized sitting room. That was all there was. And there were window seats around the edge. And there were desks, 
and many things that they'd left there, beautiful tiny painted stones and pictures and shells. Um, and, it, and in order to create their workspace just as they wanted it, they actually slept in a tent on the rock outside the front door. <laughs> so that in the morning they could get fresh into work. It was work and art, really. It was everything to them. So, you know, I took away so much from that visit. That, 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 that's so true. Um, Nat Yantu is the publisher, the translation publisher, sort of, sort of book, lent me as well a home video made, made by um, Toby's lifelong um, partner, um, Toti, or Tuliki, anyway. And uh, she um, and this video shows. So I, as a child as well, had learnt that Sylvia Anson had lived on a Finnish island with a woman, uh, which was incredibly romantic. You know, that sort of thing didn't really happen. And, but I can imagine, you know, a proper island of at least sort of 10, 10 square miles and lots of pine forests and all sorts of cliches. And then when you uh, watch this video, exactly as Ed is describing, it is basically a slab of rock. Um, with his house in it, with them rolling up their sleeping bags every night to sleep outside. And I'm going to uh, suggest that next year Chris shows some of those videos with that permission for those uh, Toby Anson fans, because um, uh, that could be done. And it's really rare footage, very fresh footage, um, home footage of, of the pair of them frolicking around this island in the most extraordinary way. Just, may I just say briefly, there's a brilliant clip which I first saw at the London Never Gonna Get Home Festival some of Tuliki's uh, home video of Dolly dancing and there's a brilliant soundtrack and she's just dancing around like this. You can suck this up a little bit of it on the, on the documentary. And she's dancing to a song but it's in her head. <laughs> and because it's on the soundtrack you think, oh yeah, but of course there was no song. There was just her head. And that was almost the strongest image I ever had of her, of sort of dancing to the music that she hears just for her. Yeah. Sure. What's what's your angle on the Well, uh, like uh, like uh, most people, uh, I uh, read her as a child. Uh, I think uh, one of the first books to be translated into Icelandic was the Comet, Hala Stjarna in Icelandic, and uh, and uh, I just uh, you know. Uh, was somehow uh, sucked into this amazing world. And uh, I think what uh, fascinated me the most, uh, besides, of course, all the happenings in the stories and the frankness of the stories, uh, were the drawings, were the visual images. Because there is a sense in most of them, even those who are, I mean, either she draws quite simple line drawings, and that is the day, but as soon as it gets closer to night, her <coughs> drawings become incredibly dark, and it's always like they are worked from the dark into the light. So this sense of the demimon, this, uh, this, this, this world of the twilight, was, uh, was really appealed to me. And uh, 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 it was something uh, you didn't see in any other children's books, you know. Maybe, maybe in Alice in Wonderland, you know, in the forest, you have the same kind of darkness. And this was, this was for a child something very uh, challenging and exciting. You felt that you were, you know, uh, that you were uh, introduced to a world that did not wholly belong to children and not wholly belong to adults. You know, you were, you were, 
Toby invited you, invited you to a darker world than most people uh, would do. So she showed you the, tr the trust of, uh, of, uh, of uh, she trusted you. She, she trusted that you, you didn't get too scared, you know. And she always, she's always very careful with that. And there is something, there's, there was something about it which, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I think, I think it was mostly this thing, that it, it ex I felt these books existed, I was six, seven when I read, started reading them. They existed in a place that, uh, that she allowed me into a place where children were usually not allowed into. And there is quirkiness in some of these stories, like uh, in the comet, is it called the comet, what is it, the comet in Moomin? Comet in Okay, the comet chase, it's sometimes called. Just the comet in Icelandic. Uh, there is a wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, scene when they, because they are trying to, uh, they're trying to get information about this comet that is on its, that is on its way to destroy the planet, and they go to uh, an observatory, and uh, and they're climbing up this really high mountain, and then all of a sudden, uh, Sniff, uh, that's his name in English, Sniff, in English, uh, Sniff, he says, oh, we're getting closer now, and uh, the moving, mo the, the moving. And, uh, and uh, what is the other? What is, uh, because you know, this is the thing with, with when you translate children's literature. Mm -hmm. you know, it's Snufkin who says they get closer. Yeah, it's Snufkin. And it's Snufkin, yeah. So Snufkin, yeah, that's true. Snufkin says, I think we're getting closer. And, uh, and, uh, and the woman boy and, and, and uh, yeah. I, I ask, ask him how he knows. And he says, Well, look at all the cigarette stubs here. So the, 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 the side of the mountain is. is, is, is is littered with cigarette stubs that you know uh, thousands of cigarettes that uh, that astronauts you know chain smoke while they're doing their astronomical studies. And cigarette stubs in a children's book—that's something—and uh, and always takes you to the edge and a little bit over it, like that, you know. And uh, this was very exciting. I mean, I used uh, the the other stuff I was reading at this time were boy detective novels, you know. So, so I remember I was quite hesitant. Uh, uh, starting to read the moment because I thought they were maybe a little bit too uh, childish for me. I was six, you know. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, and but then I, that, that when I discovered, you know, that they were, you know, the, the, the level of darkness and the quirkiness and the truthfulness, you know. Yeah. See, she allows the characters to be, you know, uh, uh, to, to, yeah, to, to, to be impolite sometimes, to be to be uh, to be wrong and uh, to say the wrong things like. Uh, be uh, some rotten, the muskrat, I think it is, which is always saying the most unpleasant things, you know. So she always brings you the whole truth. Well, well the muskrat, that, that's, one of my, that, that, that's one of the best memories, I'm sure, I'm sure it's shared, that the muskrat is a philosopher who likes to read a book called The Uselessness of Everything, <laughs> and is really, really angry when it's magic briefly into the usefulness of everything. <laughs> and I remember looking at that, I think it was so clever, as a child, saying, oh, it's the usefulness of everything, the uselessness of it. So there was this sort of philosophical inquiry going throughout the whole thing, but the muskrat is bloody furious, you know, he's really not a happy muskrat when that happens. So um, you're right, he said that. But also I think that the obsessive, she's obsessed by obsession. She's all the way through the adult book as well, adult books as well. There are characters, so the cigarette butts and this astronomer whose sole job is to try to, I think, determine whether the comet's going to break the Earth up or something. Um, you know, that, that's, I think her parents were probably very dedicated artists, and so was she. 
and that's what she understands. The Hemian is a stamp collector, and so many characters in adult books, the strangest of which is in the short story The Locomotive, where there's somebody who is obsessed by trains and ends up meeting a woman on a platform. And, um, well, I will give away the ending, shall I? <laughs> it's so dark. He befriends this woman. But there's always an, a, an artist who's obsessed, who befriends an apparently ordinary person who does all the practical looking after in some way. And this resentment that's being built up on some level anyway, she ends up, I think, killing him under a train. And it's so unexpected and it's so shocking. And that's what we'll get into when we look at the cartoonist, the adult story, is that the darkness becomes darker again. Um, and yet, it's very much held in check in the women's short stories. Every, every, everything ends up um, happy. There are adventures that get out of control, but ultimately there's pancakes for tea, you know. Yeah, but she addresses the, the, the possibility of total uh, apocalypse in, 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 the, in, the, in the comment here, in the, yes, in the comment. Because the astronomer, uh, he is absolutely, he's, he's simply excited about the fact that uh, a comet is about to hit Earth, you know. He doesn't question if everybody will die or anything. He's just fascinated by the, by, by the thing happening, you know. And so she manages to tell you all the possibilities, and uh, it is a possibility, right, to the very end, yeah, that everything will get lost, you know. The word um, bittersweet is overused, and it doesn't really capture. Um, but they're not opposites, they're twins. They both need each other, and they seem to be present in, in all the characters. What Esther was saying about the characters all being human, and I was trying to, in my faltering way, say that there was a guide to childhood, because you recognize the characters. As uh, Frank Cottrell Boyce says in the documentary, you want to be snuck in and you grow up and you realize you tend to move up. <laughs> uh, it's inevitable. But, but I'm a Hemian. I know that, because I, I used to be a transporter and I still collect stamps. Um, and yet nobody is allowed entirely to be ridiculous. The muskrat says, um, I, I missed this line, um, when he's talking about cakes. He said, I don't bother myself over things like cakes. I don't see them, taste them, or feel them in any way, ever. <laughs> he's sitting in a bath on the cake. <laughs> so he's sort of simultaneously real and ridiculous. And the Hemian, I mean, all Hemians have a nut about something. There's one that turns up in the, um, in the comic strip who's really into sports. I don't know if anybody have read it. He's, he's, sort of, he's terribly bright and he gets up and he makes everybody ski. And he's, he's really annoying. But um, they all think he's marvellous. And he sort of is marvellous. I mean, he's ridiculous, but he's got a lot of energy. And we're in trouble getting married, so he's doing right. But actually, he's got this great energy. Nobody's allowed to be entirely ridiculous. Everyone's allowed to have kind of dark or bittersweet, um, dark and light sides, and, and everyone's ultimately forgiven. Mm. I think that's... There's a lot of compassion for everybody. Okay. You feel that, I mean, people sometimes say that we're not allowed to have the eccentrics in our lives like we used to, and I don't know if that's really true, but there's certainly a feeling that people who are so isolated in the winters being so long and dark, and you get the feeling that eccentricity was, in a way, celebrated maybe more than it is allowed to be now. Children's writing who didn't have children, he said, but it's, it's from her own child that all these things are absolutely taken out of 
friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, recently died. He lived in my road. And um, the, the best thing I could think of to say to her five children and her husband of 40 years was that she always reminded me of Moomin Man, and she knew the book, in that way that she says right at the beginning, that Sniff or Snufkin, or most often Moomin Trouble, bring home a new friend. And Moomin Mama would just sigh and lay another place at table. <laughs> and that was always my ideal of what a house should be. That there was no question as to what they were doing there or what they wanted. They had to be fed. Uh, and, you know, it just the table got longer by one more person and one more creature, one more strange thing. And, um, and that house in my road was sort of like Moomin House. And she's gone. And with her, that, that safety. Uh, it wasn't at all like my own child. I think we should move on to the reading, but just to observe that um, the Moominland in November, the last book, is, is an extraordinary piece of work because it's, it's the last Moomin work ever, but she basically paints a picture of Moomin Valley with all these characters that have become reliant on the Moomin household, the Hemilin and Snufkin and everybody else, going down there, waiting for the Moomins, but they're not there, and, throughout, and they never emerge which I think is an incredible piece of artistry. And, uh, and also, uh, to use my analytic language, it's, I wrote hugely, the movements are introjected, which I don't know if what you, well, that hasn't caused any reaction. It means, <laughs> it means that, uh, that, that, that you know, the movements are inside, they no longer have to be written about, and actually these characters who kind of nearly fall apart when the movements don't turn up actually find strength in their own selves and their memories of the moment to go back to their lives better off and look after one another without the moment. So something very profound is going on. Um, but so I think we better crack on and have a bit of um, So this is Comet in Moominland. You've been well prepared to actually listen to a bit. And um, if you haven't reread it for a while. about a fantastic crossing of the dried up sea and how the snork maiden rescues moving troll from a giant octopus. On the 5th of October the birds stopped singing. The sun was so pale you could hardly see it at all and over the wood the comet hung like a cartwheel surrounded by a ring of fire. Snufkin didn't play his mouth organ that day. He was very quiet and thought to himself, I haven't felt so depressed for a long time. I usually feel sad in a way when a good party is over, but this is something different. It's horrible when the sun has gone and the forest is silent. The others hadn't much to say either. Sniff had a headache and was grumbling to himself. Their feet were tired after so much dancing, and progress was a bit slow. Gradually the trees thinned out, and by and by a landscape of deserted sand dunes lay before them. Nothing but soft sandy hillocks with here and there tufts of blue-grey sea oats. I can't smell the sea, said Moomin Troll, sniffing. It's hot. Perhaps it is a desert, said Sniff. On and on they went, up one hill and down another, and it was heavy going on the soft sand. Look, said the smoke suddenly, the Hattie Fatteners are on the move again, and sure enough, there in the distance was a wavering line of little figures. And they're going east, said the smoke. Perhaps we'd better follow them. 
because they always know where danger lies and try to get away from it. But we must go this way, said Moomin Troll. The valley is to the west. I'm so thirsty, growled Sniff, but nobody answered. Tired and discouraged, they struggled on. The sand dunes gradually got flatter and flatter, and then stopped at a line of seaweed glistening in the red light. Beyond this was a pebbly beach, and then they stood in a row and stared. Oh, strike me pink, said Moomin Troll. Where sea should have been, with soft blue waves and friendly sails, they gaped a yawning abyss. Hot steam rose from the depths of great cracks that seemed to go down to the very heart of the earth, and below them the cliff went down, down. I'm in trouble, gasped the small maiden. The whole sea has dried up. <laughs> what will the fisher say to that? exclaimed Sniff. Snork took out his exercise book and added something to the list headed Risks Encountered During Approach of Comet. <laughs> but Snufkin sat down with his head in his hands and wailed, Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear, beautiful sea. Quite gone. No more sailing, no more swimming, no more fishing, no great storms, no transparent ice, and no gleaming black water reflecting the stars. Finished. Lost. Gone. And he put his head on his knees and cried as if his heart would break. Snuff, said Ribbon Troll reproachfully, you have always been so happy-go-lucky. It's dreadful to see you despairing like this. No, said Snuffkin, but I've always loved the sea more than anything else. This is so sad. Especially for the fish, screamed Sniff. What means to be most important? What seems to be most important, said the snork, is how we are going to get across this huge gap, because we haven't got time to go round it. Oh no, of course not, Mirren agreed anxiously. Let's hold the meeting, said the snork. I will take the chair. Now, what alternatives have we for crossing a dried up sea? Fly, said Sniff. Don't be silly, said the snork. Proposal rejected. <laughs> well, walking, suggested Mirren Troll. You are stupid, said the snork. We should fall down those great cracks or sink into the mud. Proposal rejected. Uh, propose something yourself, then, said Moomin Troll angrily. Then Snufkin lifted his head. I know, he cried. Stilts. Stilts, said the snork. Proposal uh, Wait a minute, cried Snufkin. Listen, don't you remember how I used stilts in the land of, in the, land of the hot springs? In one stride, I could get over practically anything. It's quick, too. But isn't it awfully difficult to walk on stilts? asked the snork maiden. You can practice here on the beach, answered Snufkin. Now it's only a question of finding stilts. So they all set off in different directions on a stilt hunt. And it wasn't a very easy hunt either. A snork faced the problem most sensibly. He thought, stilts along poles, water poles, they are tree trunks, where are the trees in the wood? And so he set, went all the long hot way back to the edge of the wood and got a pair of slender fir saplings for himself. There were no tree spirits in the fir. Mimintrol and the Snork Maiden hunted together. They talked about Moon Valley and the cave, and soon completely forgot what they were hunting for. My papa has built a wonderful bridge, said Mimintrol for about the third time. But mostly, he writes in a book called Memoirs. It's all about what he has done in his life, and as soon as he does something else, he writes that down too. <laughs> and surely he hasn't got much time to do, he hasn't got time to do very much, said the Snork Maiden. 
well, some mm -hmm. control. He makes sure of doing things now and again, even if it's only to give himself something to write about. <laughs> Tell me about that terrible flood you had, said the snork maiden. Oh yes, it was dreadful, said Moon Patrol. The water just rose and rose until in the end, Mama and Sniff and I were standing on a little mound with hardly room, even for our tails. Phew, said the Snort Maiden. How high was the water? Five times higher than I am, or, or perhaps more, said Moon Patrol. About as high as that pole over there. Fancy, exclaimed the Snort Maiden. And they wandered on, thinking about that. After a while, Moon Patrol stopped and asked, didn't I just say as high as that pole over there? Oh, yes, why? asked the snort maiden. Well, because I've just remembered. We're looking for poles, Moon Patrol answered. We must go back and fetch it. They trudged back along the beach till they found the pole again. It was very long, painted red and white. Oh, it's one of those posts they use at sea to mark rocks from one side, said Moon Patrol. And there's the one for the other side. They were in what had been a little bay before the sea dried up, and the beach was littered with wreckage, piles of driftwood, Birch bark and seaweed. The snort maiden found the knob off the top of a ship's mast, but it was too big to take with them. Instead, she picked up a bottle with a gilded stopper which had drifted all the way from Mexico. And soon afterwards, they came across a very long plank which, broken in two, would do very well for the second pair of stilts. They set off back very pleased with themselves and found the others already practicing. Already practicing. Snufkin was demonstrating proudly on a fishing rod and a, and a hop pole and Sniff, <clears throat> he was trying to keep his balance on broomstick and the pole that still had their flag, that still had their flag on the end of it. And you ought to have seen me a minute ago, he cried, and immediately felt smack on his nose. You have to do it like this, said the Snork, climbing over a sandbag. It's like wearing seven-league boots. The Snork maiden whimpered with fright when they ho hoisted her up on her stilts, but after a time, she was better than any of them, strutting about with such an air that you'd have thought she'd worn them all her life. I think that's pretty good now, said Snufkin, when they had been balancing and staggering and falling for an hour or so. Let's start. One after another, with their stilts under their arms, they began to climb down the difficult, slippery path to the abyss. It's very depressing down there on the sea bottom. The seaweed, which looked so beautiful, waving in green, transparent water, was all flat and black, and the fish floundered pathetically, half cried out pools. The steam was like a smoke screen above them, and through it the comet shone with a dim, eerie light. It's almost the same as the land of the hot springs, said Snufkin. Smells awful, said Sniff, wrinkling his nose. Don't forget I'm to blame for this, I warned you. Oh, I'm not to blame for this, I warned you. <clears throat> How goes it? cried Mimitrol to the snort maiden through the steam. Fine, thanks, came a faint answering cry. And on they stalked like long-legged insects across the bottom of the sea, while the ground sloped gradually down. Here and there, great green dark mountains rose. Their tops had once been little islands where people had landed, and children enjoyed themselves splashing about in the water. Never again will I swim in deep water, said Smith with a shiver, just to think that all this was underneath. He squinted down a dark cleft, where there was still some water left, and no doubt a strange swarming underwater life. But it's a beautiful, but it's beautiful although it's so awful, said Snufkin. Nobody has ever been here before us. What's that over there? Oh, a treasure chest, screamed Sniff. Oh, let's go and see. We can't take it with us anyhow, said the snork. 
Let it be. I expect we'll find even more extraordinary things before we get through this place. Now they were moving between jagged black rocks and had to go very carefully for fear of the stilts getting caught. Suddenly in the gloom in front of them, a great dark shape loomed up. What's that? asked Minotroll, stopping to sudden, so suddenly that he nearly fell on his nose. Perhaps it's something that bites, said Smith anxiously. Slowly they advanced and peeped at the shape from behind a rock. A ship, exclaimed the snork. A shipwreck. How miserable she looked, poor ship. Her mast was broken and barnacles covered her rotted hull. Her sails and rigging had long ago been swept away by the current and her golden figurehead was cracked and discoloured. Do you think there's anybody on board, whispered the snork maiden. Oh, I expect they were rescued by lifeboats, said Rivenfell. Come away, this is horrible. Oh, wait a minute, said Sniff, popping down from his stilts. I can see something gold, something shiny. Oh, remember what happened with the garnets and the giant lizard, called Snuffkin. Much better, let it be. But Sniff bent down and pulled a dagger with a golden hilt out of the sand. It was set with opals that shone like moonlight, and the blade gleamed coldly. Sniff lifted up his find and shouted with excitement. Oh, so beautiful, exclaimed the snork maiden, and completely lost her balance. She rolled backwards and forwards and suddenly shot right over the side of the ship and disappeared into the hold. Mumitrol let out one shriek and dashed to her rescue. His rush was slightly held up by the slipperiness of the deck, but he was soon peering down into the dark hold. Are you there? he cried anxiously. Oh yes, I'm here, piped the snork maiden. Are you all right? asked Mumitrol, jumping down and finding with a shock that the water came up to his middle, and that it had a horrible, stagnant smell. I am all right, said the snort maiden, only so frightened. Sniff is an absolute pest, said Mimitrol furiously, always wanting to run after everything that shines or glitters. Well, I do understand him, said the snort maiden. Ornaments are such fun, especially if they're made of gold and jewels. Do you think we might find some more treasure in here? It's so dark, said Mimitrol, and there may be dangerous animals about. Yes, I suppose you're right, said the snort maiden obediently. Be a good Mimitrol then and help me out of here. So Mimitrol lifted her up onto the ledge, onto the edge of the hatchway. The snort maiden immediately took out her looking glass to see if it was broken, but thank goodness the glass was whole and all the rubies were still on the back. But as she was titivating herself, a horrifying picture came into the looking glass. There was a dark hole and there was Mimitrol who was just climbing out. Behind it, in a dark corner, there was something else, something that moved, something that crept slowly nearer to Mimitrol. Snork Maiden threw down the looking glass and yelled with all her might, Look out! There's something behind you! Mimitrol looked over his shoulder, and what he saw was a huge octopus, the most dangerous of deep-sea creatures, squirming slowly out of a corner towards him. He tried desperately to clamber up and reach the Snork Maiden's paw, but he slid back from the slimy planks and splashed into the water again. By this time, Snufkin and the others had come up on the deck to see what was happening, and they tried to poke the octopus with their stilts, but it didn't have the slightest effect on him. He just crept relentlessly nearer to Moomintroll, his long tentacles already groping after his prey. Then the snork maiden had an idea. She had often played with a looking glass in the sun, making its reflection shine into her brother's eyes to dazzle him. So now she picked up her ruby looking glass and tried the same thing against the octopus, only shining a comet instead of the sun into his eyes. He was most successful. The octopus stopped at once, and while he was dazzled and didn't know what to do, 
Moontop clambered up by his belt and was hauled on deck by the others. They left that dreadful ship without wasting any time and hardly drew, drew breath before they were several sea miles away from it. Then Moomintroll said to the snort maiden, You saved my life, you know, and in such a clever way, too. I shall ask Snuffkin to write a poem in your honour, because I'm afraid I can't write poetry myself. The snort maiden lowered her eyes and began to change colour with pleasure. I was very happy to do it, she whispered. I would save your life eight times a day, if only I could. And I wouldn't mind eight octopuses attacking me every day if I could only be saved from them by you, said Moomintroll gallantly. If you've quite finished babbling to each other, said Sniff, perhaps we could go on. <laughs>
So, Sean, can you, can you tell us about the uh, process of working with Bjork a little? Well, uh, uh, she was approached when, this, uh, when, the, when the film was uh, produced, she was approached uh, and asked if she wanted to write a theme song for the film. And, uh, and uh, well, she gets endless requests like that. But uh, because it was the movies, uh, uh, she instantly said yes. And uh, I'm very happy that she instantly turned to me and asked me if I would like to take part in this celebration of Tobin. So we wrote this song. And, uh, and uh, uh, as you can hear, this is not your uh, ordinary children's film happy song. We try to stay quite uh, true to uh, the art of Tobin, which is to create something challenging, but nice, melancholic, but comforting. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and the lyrics are, you know, they are not directly, I mean, there are themes in the lyrics from the book, the gray leaves, you know, the gray, the gray leaves and flowers, the, they're walking over the seabed, but it's more like, you know, an, an evocation of this world that Tobe creates. So, if Tobe calls, you answer, you know, and it was wonderful to be able to, to, uh, to uh, yeah, to give something back. I mean, I didn't write any fan mail either, you know. So this is like a late coming fan mail to, to talk. Yeah. That's lovely. I think um, I think because the conversation could be taken forward following Sam's reading, which is of the adult uh, section from the adult short story. I think maybe we should do that sooner okay. rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm hoping it will speak for itself and comment on what we've seen today. So this is from Art in Nature, Short Stories, which is one of the books I don't have. And that was published in written in nineteen seventy eight, published last year. Um, I can't read all of it to you, but I'll get about halfway through and then skip to it. The cartoons. The newspaper had been running blubby for almost 20 years when Allington quit and they were forced to continue the strip with a different artist. They had material for only a couple of weeks ahead, so the need was urgent. They had contractual agreements with other countries that promised a security margin of at least two months. And blubby was a clever strip that tore along at a furious pace, so not just anyone could do it. They took a handful of artists on approval and gave them office space, which saved time on supervision. The same assignment for all of them, obviously. They dismissed two of them after only a few days and replaced them with others. The editor in charge went around a couple of times a day to have a look and help them get a handle on what the paper was after. He was a tall man by the name of Freer. He had a bad back, presumably because he was forever leaning down over cartoonists' drawing boards. There was one ambitious young artist who seemed to be the best of them, but he wasn't good enough yet. You have to remember, Freer said, you have to keep in mind the whole time that the tension has to mount. You've got a strip of three or four panels, five if absolutely necessary, but four's better. Okay, in the first one you resolve the tension from the previous day. Catharsis, relief, the drama continues. You build that new tension in the second panel, increase it in panel three, and so on. I'll explain that. You're good, but you get lost in details, commentary, embroidery. It gets in the way of the red thread. It has to be a straight line, simple, and move towards the peak, a climax, you see? I know, said Samuel Stein. I know, I'm trying. 
Imagine someone opening his newspaper three of them on. He's sleeping, he's in a lousy mood, he's in a hurry to get to work. He checks the headlines on page one and dives into the comics. He's in no condition to grasp subtleties right at the moment, that's too much to ask. But his curiosity needs a little excitement and he wants a laugh, wants to grin at something funny for a second. Natural enough, right? Okay, he gets all that. We give it to him. It's important. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes, Stephen said. I think I got it from the beginning. It's just that it all has to happen so quickly. I just don't have the space to get everything in and still do something good. Not really. It'll be good, Fred said. You'll get there. Relax. I can tell you confidentially that you're one of the better ones. You draw well and your backgrounds are fine. I have to move on. It was a very small room with brown walls, essentially just a storeroom weighed down with crowded shelves and cupboards, and a large, heavy, old-fashioned desk that had drawers all the way to the floor. The walls were covered with old calendars, clippings, ads, odd posters, announcements, clumps of paper, all held in place by thumbtacks. The room gave an impression of a life that had passed long ago and been forgotten, a life no one had had time to tidy away. Samuel Stein liked the room. It gave him a feeling of being hidden and safe along with his work. And he liked being a cog in the machinery of the great, distinguished newspaper, like feeling its respect. The room was very cold. He stood up, and the chill engulfed him. The whole time he could hear the distant thudding of the printing presses, and over them the sound of traffic on the street. He was freezing. A work blouse and a sweater hung behind the door. He put on the sweater and stuck his hands into the pockets. In the right pocket, Sam Stein found a piece of paper, a list. He read it, standing <coughs> at the window. Used, it said in very small letters. Ski, skate, etc., fun of government and modern art, went to ball, one masked, two cocktail, peak gangster, astronaut, three times love, plus band out, hamburger, Indian ink, lighter background, laundry, call AG. It was a cartoonist who had worked here, and the sweater was his. Stein was curious and opened a drawer. It contained a mix of pencil stumps, tape, empty ink bottles, paper clips, all the usual junk. But maybe worse than usual. All of it had been stirred together as if in a rage. He opened the next drawer. It was empty, completely empty. He let the other drawers be and put on some water for tea. There was a hot plate on the floor under the window. It could have been Allington who'd had this room. Maybe he never worked at home. Maybe he sat right here for 20 years and drew his blubby. He had stopped abruptly in the middle of the story, and he was supposed to give six months' notice. The outline had apparently got lost at the 53rd strip. Normal length was usually 80. Stein had asked why Allington couldn't reconstruct the story. No, he wasn't able to. Didn't he want to? Had he forgotten? I don't know, Fried said. It was a different department that took care of that. Don't worry about it. Go on from where he stopped and do something of your own, but preferably so no one will see the break. You can leave off the signature. The tea water was boiling. Stein removed the saucepan and pulled out the plug. He took down the cup and the sugar he found on the shelf. There was no spoon. He had his own tea bag. So, he finds Allington. in the suburbs. It was their eyes, 
said Allington, without turning around. Their cartoon eyes. The same stupid round eyes all the time. Amazement, terror, delight, and so on. All you have to do is move the pupil and an eyebrow here and there, and people think you're brilliant. Just imagine achieving so much with so little. And in fact, they always look exactly the same. But they have to do new things all the time. All the time. You know that. You've learned that. Though. His voice was quiet, but it sounded as if he was speaking through clenched teeth. He went on without waiting for a reply. Novelty. Always something new. You start searching for ideas among the people you know, among your friends. Your own head is a blank, so you start using everything they've got, squeezing it dry. And no matter what people tell you, all you can think is, can I use it? <laughs> Allington swung around and stared at Stein, suddenly silent the ice cubes tinkling violently in his glass. His hand had started shaking. Slowly he said, Do you understand? Do you see that you can't afford it? That you don't have time to be in a hurry? Mm -hmm. Right, well, I think we see that... Um very different show. What, what, what does the panel make of, of that, what they've heard about the cartoonist, and any other reflections about any of the other adult work that you might have read about, you know, her identity as a very famous children's writer? It reminded me a little bit of The True Deceiver, which is an incredibly dark and bleak book, a book I, I really struggled to read, I must say. I, I had read half of it when I was first sent it, and then for this talk I read it a little more, but... Um, she, she has one character in it who is um, a successful children's illustrator and the publishers write the text for very small children. But there was just one, there was one bit that just made me think of that cynical um, voice that is describing the way people admire. Um, I think she has issues about fame. She apparently used to get 2,000 fan letters a year and would answer them all by hand. So she'd probably great from the to answer one more. There's just one tiny thing which um, I just made me think of. Um, uh, she, she, this woman, um, Anna, uh, gets all these letters and she starts to feel that she can't manage anymore to answer each one. And each one, she, she specializes in doing very detailed pictures of the forest floor, but always with rabbits, with flowers on them. And as soon as the, um, the children's letters start referring to the rabbits, she immediately wishes that she didn't have to read and answer them. And this letter says, um, it's... Uh, um, I think this is it. Um, a child writes, she said, Oh, Anna and Millen, the only thing you care about is your own conscience. That's what someone's saying here. That's what you cherish. You're a charming little liar. A child, a child writes, I love you. I'm saving my money to come and live with you and the bunnies. And you answer, how lovely. You'll be very welcome. And it's a lie. <laughs> yes. And there's a lot of that in, in this story that made me... You see, I love this story. Oh. Um, it's so interesting. What, what, why, why do you think you didn't like it? Because the children's writer is having a less than positive reaction. can't be that simple. You've just found it very too simple. There are three main characters and they yeah. all have something missing in a really fundamental way. Yeah. They're sort of 
they have no emotions. In, I mean, she uses bits of herself yeah. in these characters, but not the rounded person. Yeah. There's no one who's able to dance. There's no one who has fun. Yeah. Everyone's a sort of cipher, and I just find it so bleak. Yeah, it's so interesting because, again, I, and I think this gets replicated, there's Anna, the children's writer, who lives in isolation up a hill, and this really strange character called Katri, who is, is considered a sort of local witch, but she, she's also incredibly intelligent, and she holds um, a sort of practical mind. And I, I think that there's this fascinating split between the artistic self and the practical self. And Katri's job, if you like, she kind of infiltrates her way into the household, and she takes over the uh, letters and the estates from the plastic companies. I might, I, I might try and um, read, read a little bit, actually, to give you more of a flavour. But I think what's so interesting is uh, she then confronts Anna who, um, uh, and says, you know, how dare you not worry about money? Um, because she has a brother who, uh, whose sole like, desire in life is to own a boat. So it's like the Catchery side is taking her on about the economics, really, of writing. And you never see these things written about. So you have the, 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 the dreamy writer with her, with her rabbits uh, being pursued by this character who's forcing her to look at the books, literally, the financial books. And as somebody who runs a literary company where I'm constantly having to read books, um, although my primary interest is in literature, I found it particularly riveting, actually. Um, but, uh, but again, there's the plastics company. Anna had managed to forget the plastics company along with so much else. What she called the brown envelopes typewritten, never decorated with flowers, had cast a shadow on her life for too many years. For the most part, Anna got away with thanking them for their interest. How nice it was her rabbits could be put to use. Yes, the terms were acceptable, cordially yours, but sometimes they were difficult. Sometimes they wanted information, facts that Anna could locate in her memory or in the drawers of her cabinet. Then, in cowardly despair, she would put the troublesome letters to the drawer for further consideration and somehow managed to forget them, etc. So Anna forces her to take on the plastic companies who are basically, must have been, the people that were merchandising women's even then. And even in 1952, there was early evidence of um, some kind of merchandisation. There were big women's running around advertising the comic strip that mm. the Evening Standard um, mm -hmm. took on in the Evening News and taken on in England. Um, and I, unlike Esther, I find it um, kind of cheering that she in her adult work will take on, if you like, this far less romantic material in a way that is continually unwaveringly honest. And, and yes, it's difficult, but and I, it is, they are difficult, they're, 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 they're not easy reads. But, uh, but nonetheless, I found it truly rewarding. Because if you read this one, yeah, then, I have. what did you make of it? I admire it very much. It's a hard book to love, I think. But, um, but I trust it, which yeah. is more important, I think. She sort of reminds me of that, the Forster in a way. You know when you read Forster when you're young and you think, he's sort of committed, and yet he doesn't really allow you ever to be black and white. He's only interested in, in greys. And the greys come out of the antithesis being really well balanced. I do think it's interesting when we're talking about that dark. No, that was unintentional, but um, I do think there's a, a, a real play of antithesis in her in her work. There's a, a, a quote from um, True Deceiver that jumped out at me, which, if I ever play Iago, and everybody's casting, I really want to play Iago. Um, <laughs> this sort of the act of influence producing self hatred 
which I think is a brilliantly honest thing to write about. Making somebody do the thing that you want them to do and then hating yourself for being able to do it, which sort of describes the argument to me. Um, you can never really be sure, never completely certain that you haven't tried to ingratiate yourself in some hateful way. The whole sloppy, disgusting machinery that people engage in with impunity all the time everywhere to help them get what they want. I think everybody sort of knows what that means, and yet we sort of still have to do it. I think there's an extraordinary um, toing and froing in Tommy Anson's work about the stuff that she loves and, and, and can't get too close to. There's an amazing phrase in, um, in one of the short stories called The Iceberg, uh, where, I don't know if you've read it, but an iceberg comes past and a girl wants to, wants to know whether to jump on it or not. And in fact, she doesn't jump, so she throws her torch. And it's got new batteries because it's the beginning of the holidays and you always have torches and new batteries. Lovely little detail. And the, and the iceberg floats off and the torch lights it up. And she says, so unbearably beautiful that I had to get away from the whole thing as quickly as possible. And I thought, that's a brilliant description of beauty. And also a, a weirdly beautiful description of, of, of Chloe Anson's face. I always thought she was a very beautiful woman, but in a way that's not easy to look at. Do you know what I mean? That sort of beauty that is not easy to be with. And, and could be very welcoming and genuine, and yet absolutely needed its own space, and, and didn't feel it necessary that if it needed to be by itself or, or be cross or, you know, all of that was allowed, those, those, those bifurcations and those antitheses. I, it just strikes me as sort of very real. And it strikes you when you're very small that it's very real in that way as well, um, which, is, which is very helpful. I think I think in the, in the in the true deceiver, I mean, an act of goodness, of real real goodness, comes about from this activity, and that the brother Matt gets his um, boat bought for him. So I, I think that there is, as there is in in the children's work, there is um, ultimate compassion and a sort of um, act of looking at real life and, and not going ahead in the sand. But there's also a really interesting description of why the artist looks to the valley floor. And I wonder if this is her thinking about the moment. And she says, you know, I look to the valley floor because my parents were so busy being preoccupied and having this crazy life that really the only way I felt safe, this is the character in this, was by studying the, the rabbits and the forest floor. And, that's, and, and when you think about the twilight and the forests, I can't help thinking that there's an element of... Um, autobiography in that. And, uh, and this character Catchery is wrenching her head away from the forest floor, if you like, to get a look um, at life. And she's grateful for it. I mean, that's the paradox. But the, and it is, throughout, there are these really unpleasant characters who, who create good effects by forcing one part to look at the other um, in some strange way. You're not, you're not a fan no, of that? No, I really like it. And uh, maybe because uh, I'm a from Iceland and from, in a way, the same culture as, as Tobe, I find these characters very real. And, uh, and, uh, and the village life, the way she describes the, 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 the life in this village, you know, the hostility between people and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you mentioned eccentrics, you know, in, in this village they really don't tolerate, they do not tolerate eccentrics, you know, I mean, they try to keep them away. Uh, uh, I really liked it, and I, I found it fascinating that uh, uh, how, how uh, let's say, or openly 
She defines the characters uh, or gives the characters uh, animal characteristics. Uh, uh, Anna is uh, is is uh, a rabbit. She draws rabbits, and she lives in the rabbit house, and uh, and she's uh, she's uh, a sitting prey, while uh, Catherine is described as a wolf, and she, she really describes her smile as a wolf's smile. So I, I found it interesting how, how, how openly she, she, she presents them as, 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 as the wolf and, and the rabbit. And, that, and then the wolf, wolf moves in with the rabbit. <laughs> you know, so, um, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you can't trust the wolf. You never know what the real motives are, you know. But then in the end, uh, the wolf has uh, some, some, something of the wolf has wrapped on the rabbit, yes, and yes. something of the rabbit has wrapped on the wolf, yes, exactly. and that's interesting. Really. Yeah. I mean, because you can resolve it in the in the in the obvious way. Yes, yes. And you don't expect that either. I, no. When you're reading, you feel things are going to become much more extreme than that. Yes. Some kind of. But that's what cross pollination. Yes. yes. She sets up these things that look like they're going to become very dangerous and extreme, and then somehow, as you say, the cross pollination creates. An adjustment that's actually good on either side. It's a remarkable thing um, to pull off, actually. And there is a dog, isn't there? That gets um, it, that's terribly funny. What name, to the nameless dog. dog. Yeah, there's a nameless dog, and what happens is, uh, oh, Catri, the really nasty one, starts to play with it. Or? No, no, no. no. Oh, Anna starts to play with it because you're not allowed to play with it. Oh, that's right. Sorry. The dog has no name, and you're not allowed to play with it. That's right. It should just be a dog. Catri brings the dog up. Yes. And names it Teddy. Yes. That's right. But I think what's really, for me, the most interesting thing about it, and I know you mentioned this when you were talking at first, is really about creativity versus money and time. Yes. Because, you know, what, I mean, I sometimes laugh with other writers about this. Someone said, oh God, I've just come back from a, you know, four day festival where I did this, that, and that. And, and all, and when it was only as I was leaving, I thought, oh gosh, I never even asked if I was being paid. I was so obsessed with trying to get it done so I could get back to work and thinking, if I do that, I could do a bit of work on the train. So all you're thinking about is time and whether they have time to get any work done. And actually, what's the point of doing all this work if you're never actually being paid? You're, you're so sort of obsessed with time, and that's exactly where Anna's head is. She doesn't want to open the letter, she doesn't want to negotiate a fee, because she wants to be left alone. To make more beautiful, tiny illustrations of the forest floor, mm. because that's what she lives for. Mm. And I thought that that was wonderful in the book. Mm. And I think almost any creative person identifies with that, and there aren't that many people who are interested in that. But in, the, in, the, in the boring side, mm. you know, they just mm. want to get back to their work. Mm. Exactly. Or so? just to say that, that that obviously is something that's running through the middle of the cartoons. I don't know if I'm preaching to the choir, but. Um, you, you may know that the, that the movement books at least are divided into, as I said, the, the early sort of party stuff, the lighter stuff, and the, the darker, more melancholic later pieces, Women Hubbard, Sea, Tesman, Dunning, and Dunning, and basically in the 60s. And what happens in the middle is that she becomes terribly successful. That in 1953, as, as, as we've discussed, the first of this now collective body, of which there are five, mm. uh, of, of, of the script movement gets written in the, uh, put into the news in English, so she writes in English, and is syndicated to 40 different newspapers across the world, and she gets a lot of money, but she has to draw it every day for, for five years, and she doesn't write any book, 
And eventually she passes it on to her younger brother, Lars, who finishes it in some of the later winter appears, which are really good at coming out now. So it's be careful what you wish for, time. Mm. She becomes, she doesn't have to worry about money for the first time in her life. And you know, her mother's a draftsman and her father's a sculptor. So it's work, proper work. But it does stop her from writing the people. And weirdly, I think William, as you said, when she gets back to them, they've changed. And by the time, by the end of the book, I'd like to put in a word for, for, for the supporting characters, mm. not just for the Hemingons, but for the Philly Johnson, for, for the Mimble, and for Little Mai, <laughs> Little Mai, the, the smallest in existence, the smallest bunch of, of anarchy that's ever been written. <laughs> um, and, and as fully realized and as spiky as, as anything in the middle, and by the final book, that's all there is. Mm. You know, she's just, it's a great change in the road to play, I think. Because the supporting characters are so well written, uh, the, the, the sense of character that she brings to all her work is so so full um, that one always wants to play even small people. And I think when you're growing up, that you, you know you want you, you identify with, with, with these sad and small characters, uh, or Duke, Tuliki, or Toft, or you know near these people um, at various times in your life, um, and never feel that you're playing a supporting part. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I couldn't tolerate all this funny little ones. <laughs> that's, that's the forest floor. Yeah, the forest floor completely. It didn't freak me out, but also little Mai, I wanted to sort of stamp on her. I felt that... She's, great, she's was, great to voice. I did the act for little Mai. Oh, right, okay, okay. She's, she's, uh, she's just, she's just, she's like copy. And she's like, oh, well, that's funny, this is great. <laughs> and she's, you don't know where she is. And she's oh, brilliant. <laughs> she's great. Yeah. But what she really, really wanted to be doing, Tony Jackson, was being a uh, Yes, yeah, seriously taken artist. Yeah. There's a sort of great sadness as well. Yeah. Because she trained as an artist originally and then she started doing these cartoons and as they took off more and more, she had less and less time. And then there was something in the documentary about the fact that she did have an exhibition and her pictures, which actually wonderful and I had never seen any of them, yeah. were um, considered in a way too sort of um, traditional yeah. and were, were exhibited very poorly and all the modern unusual art. Um, was put in the main, and it sort of dispirited her. And I think she, I mean, it's so interesting, a creative person's career often doesn't go in the way that they want it yeah. to or think it's going to. She was just so talented at so many things. Yeah. And I think um, she may have been a wonderful artist, but she was such a wonderful writer. It was obviously surely what she was meant to be doing. Yeah, uh, that's, that's, that's a very important point, actually, before you come up to questions, is that, yeah, that her, her uh, original ambition was to become a proper fine artist. Um, it always reminds me of, um, what's he called again, um, Jonathan Miller, who is so talented, he's a director and everything else. And whenever asked, he'd just say, well, he's a complete failure because his father wanted him to sort of make an original breakthrough in science. And, uh, you know, I think she was a little bit like that, that, that somehow on one level um, she didn't quite do the thing that she wanted. Um, and so this hatred for the cartoonist herself um, is, is quite potent actually and I think it's probably a way of trying to uh, recreate the original artist that's, that's what I think I think by daring to look at it in the face and critique it she is, is the greater artist uh, and, and somehow sticking true to her roots rather than just kind of saying oh it doesn't matter, oh I've made a lot of money oh well, let's just let it go because on one level she wasn't really happy just to let it go she was violently angry with another part of the way her life had gone. Mm. But, but 
equally, you can tell from looking at her video, she was perfectly happy. Um, yeah, Sean. Yeah, I, because we've been talking about the truth, is, truth deceiver, I think we should also, we should remember the summer book. And I think it's, the summer book is the best book to begin with, of a lot of work. And uh, well, the truth deceiver is really the winter book. You know, it takes place uh, over one winter, and it's very cold, it's got like this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this hard relationship between people and, uh, and uh, lack of warmth. And then the summer book is the exact opposite. It's so full of warmth. It's, it's, well, it's probably the most beautiful book ever written. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, it's about this, yeah, this grandmother and her granddaughter and their amazing relationship on this small island over one summer or, or more summers. You know, I mean, it's, it's a string of, of stories about these, these two and uh, their discussions and, 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 and what takes place there. It's really amazing. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, Tobe always takes you to a place that, uh, for example, with the biggest respect Astrid Lindgren would do. She always, you know, steps over a line. Astrid Lindgren is more or less always within the limits of the great children's stories. And, uh, uh, and even though this is not a children's book, I mean, it is a book children should read. It should be one of the first Apple books children read. So there's always the sense of mortality and death in, in even the sweetest summer days. Mm. And I'd like to read here just a small few lines. Uh, Sophia is the girl and, and uh, the grandmother, she's not mentioned by name. Just no. grandmother. Yeah. One morning Sophia found a perfect skull of some large animal. Found it all by herself. Grandmother thought it was a seal skull. They hid it in a basket and waited all day until evening. The sunset was in different shades of red and the light flooded in over the whole island so, so that even the ground turned scarlet. They put the skull in the magic forest and it lay on the ground and gleamed with all its teeth. Suddenly Sophia began to scream, take it away, she screamed, take it away. Grandmother picked her up and held her but thought it best not to say anything. After a while, Sophia went to sleep. Grandmother sat and thought about building a matchbox house on the sandy beach by the blueberry pots behind the house. They could build a dock and make windows out of tin foil. So this is the only time in the, in the book that Sophia becomes afraid of something, and it's a seal skull. So we have here a seal skull. And uh, so this is what scared Sophia. So you can pass it around for <laughs> <laughs> Uh, perhaps the darkness was reminiscent of Alice in Wonderland. I don't know if it, 
you know that Tori Hansen illustrates Alice in Wonderland. Um, if those of you who don't know that, I brought, I brought an edition, so please have a look. Yeah. It's really, those, those, of, those of us, I'm sure I'm, there are a few in the room who get nuts about uh, editions of Alice in Wonderland, because they're all different, differently illustrated. It's always very interesting to see what bits an artist chooses to um, illustrate. My favourite example from uh, Alice in Wonderland is the sheep. Uh, Dorvid does a picture of the treacle well, which is only told at the Mount Hatton tea, tea Party by the doormouse. Remember, it was a treacle well. They lived at the bottom of Daisy Millie, Daisy Millie, whatever it is. And it's not even a real thing. It's just part of the story. But that's the thing that she chooses to illustrate, which I'm sure has never been done in an illustration. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got
don't know if you remember this, uh, in 1984, and she says, he says it, it, it wouldn't have occurred to her that an action that was pointless was not worth doing. And I think a lot of the aftermath of the war, that sort of, you know, it, it, he, she, his mother hugs her sister even though she's starving, and she says it's a pointless gesture, it didn't make anything better, it did not produce more chocolate. But, but it didn't mean that that wasn't what you did. When, when you had nothing left, you still did that. And I think that picture of her mother, you know, laying out another thing, or that extraordinary bit when the control turns, turns all, all dodgy and the hot government's hat, or the fact that it's going to get thin, and everybody goes, what's happened to Mimtrol? And, and he goes, mother, mother, it's me. And she looks into his eyes and says, yes, you are, my dear Mimtrol. And I thought, well, if that's, if that's what mothers need, you know, that's what mothers need to be in Translated as a male figure in the in the Icelandic translations of the movements, so uh, we ex experienced the group uh, as uh, the, the 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 tragic uh, hermit living at the edge of the village, you know, or just outside the village, you know. So it's uh, we, we put, you know, I don't think we 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 were sorry for him, you know, and we feel that he's emotionally trapped and he comes and he's too cold to do anything because this is the kind of guys we know from uh, living outside, you know, the villages or in the, in the farthest, uh, farthest, on the farthest farm, you know, in the valley or something like that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting for, for me to think about the Grog as a female character. Uh, Do you know, um, originally it was male or female? I think, it's, I think it's female in the Swedish. Right. Yeah. yeah, modern. Yeah, modern, yeah. Because one, one thing I learned really from watching a documentary recently was um, that I hadn't known this before, but that her father became increasingly depressed as he got older. And so there was a lot of melancholy and, and depression in various characters in the books. And obviously for her, it was you know, very traumatic in the family. He, you know, like so many people of his generation, had fought in the First World War. And then slowly, as he aged, the trauma of that um, and sent him into a depressive mood. And, and apparently, eventually, he could hardly get out of bed. And then he started drinking too much and becoming 
kind of chaotic, and the family was very split. And I think that um, Tove being so close to her mother, she sort of sided with her mother in the sort of drama of the family. But I think that knowing that, it does inform quite a lot of the dark things that she writes about. He is brilliant. She, so, so she is brilliant. We should say one thing about, about them and dark. Yeah, we sort of I want to talk about the growth in a minute. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about the growth. Uh, I will just to finish, just, just to say, because I think uh, just to explain to people, yeah, the Greg is this kind of lumpen, large, female, furry thing that arrives on the doorstep, and, 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 it, uh, and it leaves a trail of ice underneath it. It's so cold. And it's apparently terrifying, um, but actually all it wants is to come and get back something that has actually been stolen from it, I think. So it's a misunderstood outsider. Um, but again, it, yes, typical Anderson that sets up something that's apparently terrifying, um, but actually is its opposite. Thing me and Bob have a suitcase. Thing me and Bob are supposedly this this weird couple who say things like "root kittens to rat rubbish," um, and they have a well, sort of grew up afraid. It's bizarre. Um, and they have, it turns out, in their suitcase, a king's ruby, which is what our government is looking for. This is in Fintan and Minutrop, and they. And think of me and Bob won't say what's in it. But when they're discussing what it might be, they say something important, which is, think of me and Bob think the contents of the suitcase is the most beautiful thing in the world, but the grope just thinks it's the most expensive. <laughs> and in fact, the, the documentary sort of suggested that because Tobe was having a, a, re, a relationship with, a, a love affair with a female theatre director who was married, called Lily Gabanda, um, that Thingamy and Bob sort of represented them at a time when lesbianism, well, all same-sex relationships were still illegal in Finland as they were until 1971, I think. Um, and uh, that this represented some sort of weird twinning that was enough with it dare not speak its name. But that the thing in the suitcase might have been love. Mm, it was hidden in the case. It was hidden in the case because it had to be. But it was the most precious thing in the world, the most beautiful thing in the world that then somebody else wanted. The Groke, um, in one of the stories in Men in one of the Men Pabrazi is sort of described as a kind of shadow version of Mumin Mama. The, the treatment of her varies very much. As you say, she just wants to get closer. She sometimes wants to get closer to a light because it's warm and bright. But then if she sits on it, because she loves it, it goes out. And if she sits anywhere for more than five minutes, nothing will never grow there again. Before I came out, I also googled the broke, and there, the, just to finish on the broke, sorry. And there are there are all these translations to every language. But I have to uh, stumble across across the um, Arabic broke, and the broke was just like all these people were just saying, "Oh, it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in my life." And somehow it remained this this figure of anxiety without without the transforming bit. Any other um, questions? Yeah. Um, so far, the four illustrations from the text, um, I think, after that, quite interesting. Well, in the imagination. But do you think it'd be possible for any other illustrator ever to illustrate the movements? I mean, it's hard to divorce tenure from Alice in Wonderland, but loads of people have illustrated. No. No. I think the difference between uh, yeah, Penny and, 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 and Lewis Carroll's 
work together and, and the moment is that the whole thing comes from Tove. You know, mm -hmm. this is the, these are the moments that she gave us, you know. So, but I think it would only be possible for someone who had never seen the drawings and just came upon the text, you know, found the text, you know. Which is never going to happen. Which is probably never going to happen. Because they still come to the drawings before they yeah. see the text. I thought what you said about the darkness and things coming out of that sort of hinterland is, is what is difficult to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So much of the, the drawings are just dark. Although they do slightly change. I've just been, do you know this one? This is the Moment of, Moment of the Great Flood, which is the first book, mm -hmm. which has only just been, been, re, been, been translated. This was the one that nobody noticed for a bit. And they're, they're incredibly dark, but you can just about see them like buses now as well. But the Moments have got quite small noses in this one. They look, they're less cute. And they're certainly less cute than they are. That's the snow plane. Much less cute than that. Around. But I think some of the paintings and drawings in this are so beautiful that you really see that she's, you know, an artist as well as a writer, just on a completely equal footing. Yeah. Um, and somebody else obviously could, they could uh, do it, but I think, uh, and uh, I'm sure it would have to be interesting as well. They'd have to do rain really well. They'd have to, they'd have to live in a wet climate. You can see we don't relish the idea. Any other questions or sharings? Yeah? Um, two of my favorite bits. One of them goes back to the group where um, the squirrel, I think, gets frozen by the group. Mm -hmm. And then there's a footnote and it says, if you're too terribly sad, turn to page 103. <laughs> and then the squirrel appears again, like, from looking around. It's been like frozen. And then there's another bit, I'm not sure what, what book it's from, but it's where Moonshine says, all I want to do is live in peace and plant a tea tree in the All I want to do is live in peace and plant a tea tree in the I love the way that um, Moomin Mama is so sort of understanding of Moomin Papa's eccentricities and very, you know, his wandering off and his losing things and, and this dissociated behaviour. And I sort of thought that maybe that was a, a very positive reflection of the way she'd seen her parents managing mm. for so long before things went really well. Mm. Something very, very tender about that. Something about like the Papa's Pride, which needs to be handled very carefully, really reminds me of my own father. I'm sure a lot of people have. There's a bit where there's a danger of a forest fire, <laughs> and Moomin Papa wants to be strong and protecting and manly. And, and they go out and say, Papa, it's supper. And he says, No, I'm standing here. There might be a fire. And they go, it's, it's getting cold. He says, no, no, no. And Mama says, darling, it's, let me, Papa, be he needs to do this. And so Mumin Papa is standing over what is this tiny spark and a bit of wet moss. And he's smoking a pipe. And eventually he tips the embers of the pipe into the moss and blows on it. And it still won't light. <laughs> and he stands out there until it goes dark. And when he comes in, Mumin Mama says, thank you so much. For <laughs> <laughs> she knows about family. It's so touching. Um, I asked someone, much older friend of mine, once about you know how her marriage, how she sort of managed her marriage, and she said, "Ah, oh, simple. Round of applause in the morning. Round of applause at night." <laughs> 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 I think that's when Moomin Mama knew that too. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting, isn't it? Because uh, of course she didn't get married. But end of comment. End of observation. Um, because it is such a tender portrait of heterosexual marriage 
and and, uh, and and yet um, she didn't she didn't do any of that. She didn't choose any of that. She was engaged. Yeah, briefly. <laughs> and she did sustain this 35 year relationship. She did, that's true. Which is, you know, a huge achievement. Especially living on an island small in this room. I wrote her in, into the books yeah. with affection and, and, and wit, and without that, ruining their relationship. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know, I think we've talked about idealization of the maternal earlier when Mum and Mama. Anyway, let's not get onto that. I, I kind of feel that Ben and Mama need, you know, shouldn't always have to be the one um, no, cooking all the pancakes. But anyway, <laughs> time to. But, 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 but actually, Esther, you said something earlier about about um, uh, Per Olaf's younger son. He said when he was away at war, he said. What was interesting in the documentary is that um, I'd always thought of the mother, um, Pebby's mother, who was this very successful woman, as I said earlier, and did all sorts of extraordinary things. Obviously, incredibly inspiring, capable to really help the family together financially, I think. Um, but the, in the documentary, the younger brother, um, he describes her as being sort of archetypal mother figure, mm. of, you know, always at home, cooking and making a lot of... Yeah. Well, hang on. That's she was the woman who got girl guiding. She, she, you know, she was out there working. She was teaching. She was a graphic artist. How she, mm. she um, was so many things, but that's who he needed her to be, and so that's who he was. And that's who she was for him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's very interesting. Yeah. I, I guess I just don't know how she managed it. No. Um, <laughs> any closing, sharing remarks, questions? For anybody? I want to read you. Five Samuel, five. read us five lines. Read us ten. No, no, really five. This is my favourite beginning to any of the stories. And it, it, it's such a brilliant picture of concision. A different side to a heminine. This is from the heminine who once upon a time, there was a Heminin who worked in the pleasure ground, which doesn't necessarily mean having a lot of fun. The Heminin's job was to punch holes in tickets so that people wouldn't have fun more than once. <laughs> Such a job is quite enough to make anyone sad if you have to do it all your life. <laughs> Suspecting that I was wanting, knowing that I should want to be snuffed and suspecting I was really sniffed. <laughs> Settling possibly for being kind of a movement at the end. But, um, uh, thank you all for a very lovely and set of readings for bringing it together, Becky, and leading the discussion. I think it's just been a real joy not only to have you as a war member, but to have you as a creative part of our wider Writers' Centre family. So thank you all for coming once again this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed.